You know, every meeting has a purpose. Uh, the ultimate purpose is Ephesians 4, for the equipping, the perfecting of the saints, the making whole of the saints, like Paul would say, till we all come unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of the head, which is Christ. Now, what Paul is saying simply is, there is a head, and there's a corpus, there's a body. The body, the church, is called the body of Christ. So Christ is the reference. So Paul says, every person who is a member of the body of Christ, or who is a member of the church, is a member of the body of Christ. But not every person has the same level of maturity. So what the Bible did is that, Paul says, he gave some pastors, some teachers, some evangelists, some prophets, for a time frame, till all of us come in the unity of faith onto the measure of this reference, which is the head. That's why we preach. That's why we teach. That's why we exhort one another daily. That's why the Bible says, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his brother. So we'll keep doing this in this time frame, on this side of eternity, until everybody is beat up to that level of perfection, that level of wholeness. We're not called to be excellent. We're called to be perfect. But perfection is not attainable in the flesh. So it remains an ever-constant pursuit. But the more we pursue that which is not attainable in the flesh, which is perfection, we are consistently excellent. So Paul says, this one thing I do, not counting myself to have succeeded, not counting myself to have apprehended, not counting myself to have yet attained perfection, I press. Towards the mark of my ambition, no. Towards the mark of perfection, the mark of the high calling upon my life. By so doing, I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, whatever things were my academic credentials, my accolades, my earthly appellations, I considered it as immaterial for one reason, that I may know him. That I may know him. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. That is what Christianity is hinged upon. The power of his resurrection. The belief that things transcend death. The power of his resurrection. When I can know that, then I can become like him unto death. Then I can now stick the way he's talked to truth, even to the point of dying. Why? Because I know when I die, I will live again. When I know the power of his resurrection, and I become conformable unto his death. When I know the power that made him rise from the dead, then I can stay on that course even to the point of dying because, because I shall live again. That's the summary of Christianity. That's what we preach. We preach because we believe that there's a life that transcends the physical. That's why we've had this series. Because everything we've done is a juxtaposition between earthly beliefs and the world's as defined by the world system, and what Christianity came to preach. Christianity is not a religion. It is so, concept, so contextualized because there's no better description. Because it follows, as people will say, a codified set of rules. But reality, it doesn't. It appears to do so, but it doesn't. Christianity is not even what we say. It's life itself. Christianity is the reflection of life. It is not a lifestyle. <laughs> Christianity is not a lifestyle. Christianity... What you call a lifestyle is a result of what we have become. The Bible says, he that hath the son hath life. Hath life. Hath life. He that hath the son is the one who is alive. He that hath not the son is not alive. That's why the Bible characterizes it. Why is it so? Because only we have a life that transcends physical death. The word says, sin is believing. 
we say, believing is seeing. The word says, whatsoever is alive will die. We say, whatsoever is dead will come alive. So Romans 12, Paul says, and be not conformed to this world. The only way you can practice this faith is that you are transformed, metamorphosed, growing from face to face by the renewing of your minds. That's what we're doing, what we're doing. Because you will not hear it elsewhere. Christianity is a revolutionary paradigm. It is not normal. It cannot be. Human beings could not have pinned down these things by their own motivation. It's not possible. There is no nation in the world that did not have a Christian history that practices democracy. It's not possible. It is not possible for a civilization. When you do comparative anthropology, it is not possible for a civilization independently to conceive an idea that my vote and the vote of the king will be the same. It's not possible. Because human tendency, the trajectory of human reasoning is class consciousness. I cannot be the same with the king. But democracy is anchored on the principle of equality. And Christianity endorsed it. That in him there's neither male nor female. In him there's neither rich nor poor. Neither bond nor free. There's no nation in the world that not historically practice Christianity. That practices monogamy. It's not possible. Human beings cannot come to a point where they say it's one man, one wife. It's not possible. It's not possible. Because monogamy implies equality of male and female. Polygamy emphasizes the fact that males are superior to females. That's the essence of polygamy. That's what it defines. That's why I say every culture struggles with it. From Arabic civilization to African traditional religion. It is not possible unless you had a history of Christianity to practice monogamy. It is not possible to even think and conceptualize that a man and a woman, even within Christianity, people still struggle with it. To tell you that it's not human tendency. These things we teach, it's not human. It's inspired by God to think that a laborer and his king are one and the same under God. To think that a male and a female are one and the same under God. It's not natural. It's born out of a spiritual understanding. That's why we're teaching what we're teaching. So when we talk about things like predestination, about evolution, about prelapsarianism, we're not speaking esoteric or abstract things. It's very practical because it's the belief that the world system is hinged upon. The belief in fundamental inequality. People are predestined to be what they will be. When you believe in predestination, you will naturally accept inequality. When you believe in predestination, you naturally accept racism. You would not know that you have subconsciously accepted it. But when you believe, the belief that spawned abominations like apartheid, racism, were hinged upon the belief that certain races were predestined to be superior and others were meant to be saved. When you read the arguments that were put before the Westminster Parliament in Britain, and you hear persons arguing why it was important for Africans to be colonized, you weep for your race. There was a time in the American Constitution that was written that a black man is three-fifths of a human being. It was written, human beings sat down and wrote it. What erased it? The wave of Christianity. As Christian thought began to take hold and root, it became impossible to reconcile that a human being created in God's image could ever be seen as unequal. All of the civil rights movement was not because some blacks got together to decide to rise against an established white supremacy system in America. No. Martin Luther King stood on the Lincoln Memorial marble steps. And when I went to Washington, 
I just tried to reenact those moments. And I felt waves of emotion coming. And I went to the Lincoln Memorial. Pastor, you've been there. You see, if you don't tell when you enter there, says the temple, don't talk. You feel the weight of history. And I stood on the steps that Martin Luther King stood upon and made those famous statements. I have a dream. And that was his preamble, that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of his creed. What was that creed? The preamble of the American Constitution. We hold this truth to be self-evident, that God had made all men equal. So a time came as truth was being propagated that people could not reconcile that how can human beings see they're created in God's image and some are superior to others. What we preach is truth. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what system exists in the world. This truth we preach will break down those institutionalized systems. All you need to liberate man to preach the word of God. That's what Paul said. I am not ashamed of the gospel, but it is power unto salvation. It is the power unto salvation. It is the power unto salvation. So what we preach, we are persuaded about. It's not academic. It's not esoteric. It's not highfalutin. It is not abstract. It is real. Any nation, any group of people, any person who believed it experienced salvation. So Peter told Cornelius, thou shalt be saved and thine household. This gospel has the ability to affect your neighborhood. It has. So take it personally. Fight for it. James said, no, was it James? Well, it was John actually. He said, contend earnestly for the faith. Or James said the same thing. Contend earnestly for the faith. We just want delivered to the saints. Contend. That's why we're here. Because the way, the war waged against us is not the war of believing Lord Jesus Christ and that shall be saved. No. Confess Islam and die. No. It's beyond that. The war is beyond that. Perversion is not an opposite of the truth. Or the lie is not an opposite of the truth. Utterly perversion. The devil did not say, God did not say. He never said that. He said, did God say? Did God say? There is the truth. There is the whole truth. There's also nothing but the truth. Did God say? So what we want to teach is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Nothing added. Nothing subtracted. That the Son of Man may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So believe these things. Think on these things. Philippians 4, 8. Think on these things. As we take questions, if you have them in your heart, or the ones people have asked you, be bold. Let's x-ray them. Let's discuss them. Let's discuss them. Why was this man born? I like the way the disciples talked. They asked Jesus Christ. Why was this man born blind? I mean, teaching us things. It's practical. Why was this man born blind? Was he predestined to be blind? Is it the consequence of a sin he committed? But he was born blind, so he couldn't have committed the sin. All right? So was it the consequence of the sin his parents committed? So was it a transgenerational curse that he was carrying? Why was this man born blind? When people ask questions, they get answers. Mary looked at the angel Gabriel, who was boasting, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. You know what I was saying? It was not a rumor. An angel didn't tell me to come and tell an angel to come and tell. I stand, I heard God say directly. <laughs> when he finished speaking, Mary asked a simple question. I know your title appellation. I know your CV. One question. How can these things be? Seeing that I'm a virgin. And she got her answer. The power of the Holy Ghost. So sometimes the path to truth begins with doubt. You need to question some things you hear. To question some things you've always known. Interrogate your foundations. 
even your theological foundations. That's how you reinforce truth. Don't be afraid to question. Paul commended the Berean Christians. Why? That they went back and searched to find out which things that Paul spoke were true. We have a generation of Christians who are, not, who are no longer reading, who are no longer searching, who just want to dance, be happy, and there's everything right with dancing. The problem is when you're dancing without knowledge. Rabbi says, praise God with understanding. That has only problem. The problem is not dancing. The problem is when you're dancing without knowledge. Because the Bible says that God is not respect of persons. But like the Archbishop of Dawson said, neither is the devil is respect of titles. The devil is not scared by people who are gathered. I always say that. The Bible says that the sons of God gathered. What happened to the devil? He came to. He invited himself to the meeting. He's not afraid of meetings. He's concerned about people who will know what to do thereafter. Hallelujah. So when the church began to contend with such philosophies as evolution, instead of confronting them, they ignored them. And that's how a lot of people were swept out of Europe. With a wave of secular humanism that swept through Europe, a lot of persons were swept out of the church. Like I was talking to my wife the other day, I said there was a, there was a time when what supernatural, they ascribed scientific phenomena to the supernatural. So, what we call supernatural deities, technically, were mystical or yet, under, yet to be understood natural phenomena. So when people saw a lightning storm, a thunderstorm, and they could not rationalize, they could not explain readily. It's thunder there. The lightning struck the tree. There's rain. There's raging storms. The billowing waves. What's causing it? The gods must be angry. So they named it after a god. I give it a thematic jurisdiction. This god has this nomenclature, and this is his jurisdiction. He will always be the god of thunder. And from civilization to civilization, that was the point. So for the Greeks, it was Thor. For the Yorubas, it was Shango. The same thing. The same thing. The difference is that they created an Avengers movie out of it. Probably we should create the Revengers. <laughs> it was the same thing. I keep telling my wife, there's no difference between Shango and Thor. They just make them look very fine. But it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Anytime I read, I just say Thor. My mind comes Shango. Because the difference is that in African mythology, you had what we call apotheosis. Strong men, when they die, they continue walking. They became ancestors. We gave them titles. So Shango was the first elephant of Oyo. So when he died, he was such a powerful king. Ogun, those are your rulers. And when we saw things that we could not understand in nature, we ascribed deities to them. But then came the Enlightenment Renaissance. So then came the Scientific Revolution. And then you had Isaac Newton. And other scientists began to explain how rain comes, how thunder comes, and how the scientific things come. So the mysticism that the supernatural had was lost. So what is left? When we can no longer say it is God who's causing thunder, it is God who's striking people dead with lightning. When we cannot explain the psychicality of weather, we cannot, we cannot even predict when rain will come. We could not predict that where, gravity was responsible for you walking up and down, and man could not overcome gravity by focus on momentum. So I know gravity tends things towards the center of the earth. If I can overcome gravity, then I can fly. The moment science became so magical, supernatural lost its feel. And that's why everything that's put on supernatural, the moment the enlightenment waves came, people in Europe 
in the Western world could no longer accept Christianity and anything had to do with religion because all of religion was hinged on the supernatural. And as a then, the supernatural meant the yet-to-be-understood scientific. So when science came, religion failed. When science came, religion failed. That's what Jesus Christ said. He said, the Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews seek for a sign. That's always been the problem. Africans seek for a sign. They want something supernatural. See power! That's what all Africans want. See power! Oh my God! My God! My God! He waved his hand. Four clouds followed him. But the Greeks, what they look for is wisdom. They wanted knowledge. So when philosophers came, they were carried away. For Africans, when a lot of marabouts came, they were carried away. But the moment science came and explained many of these things I would not understand, religion started losing its potency. So people started following people, people of good character, of high ethical conduct. The moment people now saw that you do not need to be a Christian to be morally upright, even that appeal started dying down. So we are faced with a generation that have come to see that you don't need to be a Christian to pay people's salaries. You don't need to be a Christian to be faithful. You don't need to be a Christian to be truthful. And you don't even need to believe in God to have your three square meals met. I mean, you don't pray about those things abroad. You don't think about them. A time came when I was in London, I could predict when the train would come. And I knew why people hurry. Because it's not a clockwork mechanism. Oh, this is Bekalu Station. The train will come at 8.42. By the time I go to West Orange or whatever, it will come by 8.44. So if I leave my house 8.05 a.m., I will get to work 9.17. You can predict it. It becomes a routine. Their life has become so near perfect. Why do you need God? Because he was seen to be the God of order. We've created it. Why do you need God? We can predict the weather. They can predict tsunami now. They can tell you that eclipse will happen. I know when the next eclipse will happen. I know the day, the month. I know which country. In the next four years, I can predict it. So why do you need God? But the point is that God was never all of this. And this is where we begin our questions and answers. What has always been the problem is that the church misunderstood and therefore misprojected God. And when that concept of God that the church projected was demystified, there was nothing substantive to stand about. There was nothing substantive. But that was never God. It was never God. Just because I said you made the scripture of none effect because of a tradition. That was never God. The Bible says there was a shaking of the mountains, but God was not there. There was a billowing of storms, but God was not there. And there was a still, small voice. That's an insult to God. It's an insult to describe him as speaking in a still, small voice. The Bible says that the sea saw him and did what? They fled. The mountains saw him and skipped like rams. That's how he had always appeared. But this time, talk like a child in a still, small voice. But because Elijah knew that God was not the God of a loud voice or lightning, he was God without any form of description, he recognized God. It's time for us to start telling the world who God really is. He's He's not the man who shouts. He's not the man of miracles. He's God by himself. Those things are the effect of his presence. He is everywhere. David said, Whither shall I hide from thy presence? Even if I make my bed in hell, say you are there. In hell. So if I dwell in the clouds, thou art there. He's not the God who answers prayers. Eh. He's not. He is still God when your prayers are not answered. You don't define him by creating monuments out of problems. He's not the God 
who healed the sick. He is God who healed the sick. It's not defined. It's not Jehovah Jireh. Who shall I say sent me? I'm what? I am. Not I'm Jehovah Jireh. Not I'm Jehovah Shalom. Not I'm Jehovah Provider. I'm not the warrior. I am. I am whosoever I choose to be. Self-consistent, self-existent God. We understand knowing him for who he is. Because if we keep representing him and misprojecting him, the world will keep demystifying him. And we'll have no more God to project. But he will still be there in the shadows, just waiting. God bless you all. We'll take questions now. Hallelujah. So, Reverend Osas is here. Other questions? I just laid this foundation. Let's put our hands together for Reverend Osas as it comes. I'm, I'm always comfortable when he's around because I can always deflect any questions to him. Good evening, everybody. First of all, I, w I want to define the word omniscience. It means knowing everything or to know or I don't know if I'm correct. And the Bible describes God as omniscience. Now, if God knows everything, I studied the Bible this morning before I came up with this question. I want to be sure. I wanted to be sure. And um, I found out that God asked some questions in the Bible. For example, he asked Adam, Adam, where are you? He asked Satan, where are you going? And he also asked Moses a question in the wilderness. You know, he asked a couple of questions in the Bible. So my question is, if God knows everything, why ask questions? Is it that he wants us to give him answers or what? So that's one. Okay, my next question is, um, I also studied um, the Bible and I came across the first and second commandment, which says, thou shalt not serve any other God or thou shalt not make unto thyself a graven image. My question is straight to the point. This is talking about Christianity and um, we have some religion or some sets of Christianity who, who worship God through Mary. You know, they pray to Mary. I've, I've seen them. I've seen them. They pray, they pray to God through Mary. And the Bible says, Thou shalt not make unto thyself a graven image. That is an image. I think that is my own definition. If I want to define image, I'll define that Mary as an image. So, is, are they actually serving God? Or don't you think they are breaking the second commandment, sir? Um, if I got a question correctly, the first one I guys is online science. Yeah, he was on my science, okay? Um, why is he posing questions when he's supposed to know all the answers? And the second is regards graven image, okay, as regards worship. All right, I'll be quick with the topical answers. Now, online science means all-knowing, all right? Now, you must understand that what is documented in scriptures, as we call it scriptures, is not um, a book written by God, okay? Everyone's seen this on Sunday. Um, it's a bit difficult to... to Contextualize it. It's easier to say it than to explain what I mean, but I will try. And please excuse the limitations. It wasn't God who wrote the Bible, it was God who inspired the writing of the Bible. Now, what that means is that if I tell a four year old child to pen down something that would be read by four year old children, there will be some contextual limitation to what I would say. Because I'm communicating when arithmetic was written. There was already calculus, I hope you know. Now, so when you, in primary school, you were learning that five minus three, two, and three minus five cannot. That's what they told in primary school, right? 
And, and that was true at that point. It was factually correct, but it wasn't ultimately true. Because at that time, you don't understand the concept of negative integers. When you go to secondary school, they told you that 3 minus 5 is what? Minus 2. Because now you're being introduced to a world of debit system. So you now learn that you can have 3,000 in the bank and still withdraw 5,000. You're not learning negative integers. But at that point, they told you that the square root of 4 was 2. But the square root of minus 4, they told you cannot. Because at that point in time, you cannot square the negative number. You understand? So they tell you, you cannot have the square root of minus 4. That's secondary school. Because you not learned complex integers. When you get to university, you now tell you about complex integers. That the square root of minus 1 is i. And i squared is equal to what? Minus 1. So the square root of minus 4 becomes 2i. Because now you're not learning complex integers. Knowledge is progressive. What we have in the Bible is true, but limited for our understanding. But that's what we need now. So you must always, you always have these, these limitations. That's why you hear John will say when writing Revelations that I heard some things that we said seal until the end of time. Not everything that can be said is said. As Paul will say, there are things that are heard and lawful for man to utter. They are not lawful because men will not understand. We don't have, our knowledge is finite. We don't have the capacity to understand fully what God is saying. So when you read God, ask questions like, I hear something about the Bible says, and he repented God that he had made man. That is written for our sake. So we understand it in human attributes. But he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't. The Bible says, John speaking, that he's a God of light. There's no shadow of turning or variableness. He doesn't make mistakes for our sake. He planned from the beginning. But we have this conversational train so that we understand that dialectics is for our sake. There are questions you ask your child that are rhetorical. You ask to find out what the person will say, not because you don't have the answer. The Bible says, and sometimes even the Bible helps us when it says that this he asked, not because he did not know, but he knowing men wanted to know what was in their hearts. You see that? So in New Testament, you now see because we now had a God-man. You now see the clear distinction between how God thinks and how man thinks. But in the Old Testament, you didn't have a visceral representation of God. You didn't have a corporeal, you didn't have a Jesus. So, when you see Jesus, you now see the Bible talked about Jesus Christ's thought pattern, what he was thinking, why he was asking the question he was asking. But times he says, Father, I thank you because you always hear me. And that prayer sounds foolish because why we talk to somebody who you have a relationship with? And I say, I'm saying this not because of us, but because of them. Now you begin to understand those things. There are many things that are documented, like Paul would say in Romans 15, verse 4, that things are written before time, written for our sake, that we may have hope. When God is asking, Adam, where have you been? It's not because he did not know. Adam's answer is important, not only for the sake of that conversation, but for history's sake. People will know that this is what happened. So there's some things that happen that way, not because God does not know, but actually because he knows and wants to hear what you will say. When a teacher asks you a question, not because he does not know, he's not trying to find the answer from you. <laughs> he's trying to evaluate how much you know about the answer. So God is omniscient, but he does not reveal everything he knows per time, per time, simply because you cannot even receive it. Just like I said, there are many things I want to tell you, but you cannot even receive it. So, what will happen? I will watch. How be it? When you have matured enough, when the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. So, that's why we're getting more progressive. The things we know now, things we're talking about here, could not have been preached in those days, in the Old Testament. But we had the Holy Spirit. So, just like I said, even the prophets of old desire to look into the things that you know now. But now we can receive them. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit. So knowledge is progressive. Okay. Yeah, yeah, very well. I, I agree with you. Um, and uh, you should also see God from a relational position. Um, God wants to engage and have a relationship. It's like me saying, uh, how are you today? You understand? Is it that I know that you are not fine or I don't know that you are fine? 
how are you today is because I want to engage. I, I want a relationship. Um, God will always meet with Adam on the spot, but Adam wasn't there. Of course, um, you know, sometimes when you try to unravel God against the backdrop of our earth limitations, it's a challenge for us. For example, you hear that, oh, um, a thousand years is like a day before God. Come on, day and night is within the sphere of earth. If you even take a rocket and fly above the earth, there's no day and night there, right? So now, if you go above the earth, you are in the, the outer space, how do you now judge God on the basis of day and night? Praise God. So when the Bible, when, when we, we represent God within the sphere of our human limitation, that's when we have these challenges. Although that question you ask is actually the brain, is actually the core question about determinism. Yes. If God is omniscient yes, and he knows that somebody is going to die why tomorrow, why didn't he prevent it? Does he now mean that he knows that the person is going to die and there's nothing that can be done. That means he's no longer omnipotent. So, you know, that's because we are trying to define God against the backdrop of our earth limitations. Praise God. So, there are a plethora of scriptures that confirm beyond reasonable doubt that God knows the future from the past. And I've used the very fundamental basis of scientific algorithms to, to ascertain that, yes, you cannot doubt of course, algorithms are built on the basis of information that you have, on Absolutely. the basis of data. Absolutely. And to just show to you the degree to which God has every data element on earth. He says he knows the number of hair on your head. He knows the number of sand grains on the seashore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we are in the age of big data. Yeah. So when, when the says that God knows the number of sand grains on the seashore. You, not, not, you, not Google, not Google. You, you know, just, you, that's incomprehensible, actually, right? <laughs> Praise God. Now, um, the degree to which you can algorithmically predict is determined by the of quantum data. of yes. data that you have, right? Yeah. Uh, Praise God, I hope. You know, we, you need to, you are the one focusing this. You need to start. <laughs> Let's find a way to break this thing down. Actually, the, the you know? volume of data. For example, I have said that when you are typing in your phone, there are algorithms that, programming that has been written, that when you type com, the phone can predict what you will type next, right? So on the basis of that prediction, the phone will give you options. Right? It will give you options. Maybe come again, come after. You know, it will give you options. In fact, if you are using that phone, it's machine learning. You are using that phone, and each time you say, come, you always use the word after, come after, come after. It won't even give you further options. It will just give you after, right? So, the omniscient of God is such that all possible predictive combinations, he knows it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Praise God. So, he knows that, I think you, you did a lot of that explanation on last week. He knows that one plus one will always give you two. He knows that if you do this, 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 do this you, you know, see, 
The first thing you must establish with yourself is that the future has not been lived. Right? Yes. Has the future been lived? You know, unless you believe, you know, in, in talking about issues of determinism and all that, the first fundamental principle we always try to establish is that there are no dual world. The concept of dualism. Maybe there's a parallel world where whatever you are seeing here is a mirror image of what is happening there. Now, if the future has been lived, you can now say that, ah, I know that when Oduare lives here, he's going straight to UBTH because the future has been lived. Has the future been lived? Yeah. The future has not been lived. But guess what? By, <laughs> I don't like using, the, but by algorithms, by design, by God knows your frame. He knows the kind of decision you, you by reason of your makeup, he knows what you are going to do next. Yeah, yes, and the trend is determined. So he tells you that ah, is this person is going to do this. So that, if you understand the omniscient of God against that backdrop, it's easy for you to comprehend. And, and matter of fact, it only proves that the true ultimate proof of God existing is the person who's looking at you. You, you can tell, keep monkeys the way they are. The next 200 years, they'll still be jumping from tree to tree. The only set of beings who have metamorphosed, who have morphed into different beings are us. And that's because we are the only ones who are created in God's image and likeness. We are the proof. The atheist you see walking on the street is the very proof that God exists. He does not know because he's looking for it elsewhere. He is the proof. The fact that he can come to the point where he contemplates his own existence. The monkey crossing the road does not even care. Who born do I survive? Is banana is looking for banana. <laughs> not who, why did they come here? Is okay. how do I survive? Yes. All right. Now, the second question about... Um, uh, first, you know, we've also said that Christianity is not a religion. One of the problems we have had in the body of Christ today is that we are presenting it like a religion. So people are now having options. If Christianity is a religion, I can as well choose to, be, to follow Islam. Absolutely. I cannot, you know, today you hear people, they say that they were Muslims. They are now Christians. Uh, yes. It's strange. Christianity is not a religion. Religion binds. Uh, from classical religion... The Bible says you shall not worship any graven image. If you have any statue in your house that gives you a picture of God, and you go in front of that statue and pray and make a wish, that's graven. That's, that's actually classical definition of idolatry. Absolutely. In fact, one of the cr cr uh, critical problems that Muslims have with Christians yeah. is that part. That's the part, yes. That we, are, we serve image. And you know that by in the in founding Islamism, of course, you know Islamism was founded by uh, traders, Jewish traders who educated Muhammad, because the Arabian region was deeply idolatr idolatrous. They said that's effigies and images, and so if you observe, one of the number one principle of the Islamic movement is they will that's in parallel with the Jews. They will never bow before any graven image. Praise God. So I would agree with you to a degree that actually, if you have any image, if you like, call it Jesus. If you like, call it Mary. If you like, call it cross. Yeah. You understand? That you have to go and say, oh, this image represents, oh, the cross. You know, in some churches, you even see a big cross. Yes, just to give them a reminder of, but any image that you go to, and you are kneeling down and praying to, that's already idolatry. You have crossed the path. And now, the Christianity, 
Christianity is not about rules of do's and don'ts. What is the Christianity, what's the impact of Christianity in that practice? The impact of Christianity in that practice is this. The whole world was locked in a life of do's and don'ts, um, uh, idols you must worship, uh, books, that's rules you must follow, uh, shrines you must visit, sacrifices you must make. Now, when Jesus came, he came to free men from the whole of religion. So, the need to go and sit down before his statue. For example, Robert Powell has been crying around the world that, look, I am not Jesus. You know Robert Powell. Many of the statues, a lot of people you see in many of these places, is Robert Powell's picture. The man that acted Jesus of Nazareth. He's a British comedian. The woman that you see most times as Mary and all that is a statue, is Venus. The goddess of uh, something in the Roman, and if you go and read the parallel about Venus, they will tell you that he's the mother of God. Praise God. So the problem people have in that, in that wise is, is, is a knowledge problem. It's a very fundamental knowledge problem. But I'm not going to judge a Catholic Christian on the basis of, oh, he's following Mary, or he's having the statue of Jesus in his room, because... The basis, God is no longer judging us on the basis of Ten Commandments. Praise God. No, that's not how God is judging us. We have actually, I've preached a message in this church that Deuteronomy is not for me. When they were writing Deuteronomy, it was not me they had in mind. Right? Is it not true? Do you think it was you they had in mind when they were writing Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy was written for the Jews. I was not a Jew when it was written. I'm being nice to try and adopt the practices of Deuteronomy to regulate my Christian life. No. You can be a Christian even when there's no Bible. What we have as Bible, God never came from heaven. I think Christianity is the only, one of the only life that we were not. Jesus did not come to earth and said, I came with this book, so read it to be accepted. So you will have problem with that if you think that God is going to judge them on the basis of Deuteronomy or Exodus 18. God is not going to judge them on the basis of that. So if they believe in Jesus, God will judge them purely on the basis of their faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, he says, uh, by the doings of the law shall none be justified. So the Catholics are not justified by the observance of Ten Commandments. Neither are you. Neither am I. So, and the basis of judgment, that's why I know that there are some evangelicals who believe that Catholics will not go to heaven because of statue. You will be so flatly wrong in that sense. Because there are some other things that Pentecostals do that is also idolatry. Some of you carry oil. Yeah, oil. Your faith is hinged on that oil. Ah, that oil. So what's the difference between that oil and the, the, rosary. the rosary that the Catholics carry? Or mantle. Even leave that one. Let's, let's even be more radical. Some of you carry Bible and put it under your pillow. Oh, yeah. Yes. You put Bible under your pillow. Is that not idolatry? What's the difference between you carrying a Bible and putting it under your pillow and the man who carries a statue of Jesus or the statue of Mary and puts it under, under, his, under his pillow? It's the same thing you are doing. It's the same thing. So, God, if God wants to judge on the basis of that, even people who are speaking in tongues, they will also be in the class of idolaters. So God will not judge on the basis of, by the doings of the law shall not be justified. By the doings of the law of Exodus, 
of Leviticus, of Deuteronomy, shall none be justified. So let your mind be at peace. Don't do it because it's not one of the things God expects you to do to, to gain righteousness. Praise God. I think we should go to other questions. Yes, a couple of questions on ground. So the next yes. question, who should we pray to God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit? Wow. <laughs> you know, there's the principle of Arianism. Arianism is different from prelapsarianism and all that. Arianism was the, the core of arguments about Arianism is about the deity of Jesus. Praise God. If you believe Jesus is God, if you pray to Jesus, you are praying to God, right? And Jesus said he is God. If you've seen the Father, you have seen me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Praise God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Abina, is that not how the Bible says it? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and my Father, we are one. Yeah, before Abraham, I am. Praise God. So, for me, you, you know, it's, it's because of... See, Christianity is not a religion of rules. If you have that at the back of your mind, it saves you of some of these contentions. Oh, should I pray in the name of Jesus? Or should I pray... Uh, to the Father through Jesus, or to the Father through, if you are praying to, to the Father, you are praying to Jesus, uh, Jesus say, I am my Father, we are one. Praise God. But, okay, for those of you who want to be uh, semantically correct, pray to the Father in my name, you will have it. Whatever you ask in my name, you will receive. Uh, but if you cannot remember that, it says, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you, Right? So anywhere you go, there is a scriptural provision that gives you comfort in that sense. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will... Abi, is that what the Bible says? Yeah. Next question. Okay. If God doesn't change, how come he killed the firstborn of all Egyptians? Then, then but now he seems to what? He beats kind in allowing human judge over their issues. <laughs> Praise God. You should answer that question. <laughs> All right, I think it's threw some light on this at the other time. The Bible says, and the Bible is clear. I am the Lord, I change it not. And that is fixed. He doesn't change. In other words, God is not changing his mind as regards humanity. He's not changing his mind as regards what he defines as right or wrong. What is changing is the way he engages with man. And the reason is very clear. There is a salvation timeline. There is a salvation timeline. Or to understand context, what will be has not yet been. There is a future that has not yet been lived. Man living today is living after the cross. That those who live before the cross, we are after the cross, but we are still before the ultimate redemption. This body has not yet been saved. It will still be saved. Salvation has been done, is being done, and will yet be done. We have been saved, we have been saved, and we will be saved. That's why you hear Paul say, to wait the redemption of the body. When Paul says that there's a glorification to come, that he, those that he, for, he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he ordained, and those he ordained, he glorified. He's talking about the fact that a day will come when this corrupt body will put on incorruption. So Paul says, or John says, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be transmogrified. We shall be transmuted. We shall be transformed, and I have celestial tabernacles, then this body has been saved. But 
in case that we died. Paul says, don't bother, which I know will precede those who have died. For the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead, if it dwells in you, on that last day, your atoms, your molecules decayed, will be quickened. And then you have a visceral body that is celestial. Now, what's important is this. There is a timeline of salvation. There is a time that will come when there will neither day nor night. All this era will pass away. That's what the Bible talks about, world without end. When it says world without end, it's talking about the fact that the age will come that will not end. But this will pass away. So what happened then before the cross was that man had sinned, according to Romans 2.23, and all men were condemned to die. For Romans 2.23 says that the wages of sin is what? So all should have died. The reason why some did not die is because the Bible says in Hebrews 11 later on that the fathers of past believed and they were not saved. No, it was counted unto them for what? Righteousness. They were excused because they believed in the one and true God. That's why you had Abraham. And from Abraham, like Pastor said on Sunday, you had those, Isaac found his generation race, but Abraham preceded Isaac. So at every point in time, when one man believes in God, it's kind of for righteousness, his generation, uh, the next person in that amongst his children who believes, it goes on and on. When God wanted to deal with Egypt, he used Egypt as an example of judgment. Israel became an example of the church. It was a type of what was to come. A time will come when there will be condemnation and salvation. But at this point in time, both the Israelites and the Egyptians all deserved to die. All. He only saved some by prerogative as a type of judgment that was to come. So it's not about why some were saved. It's not about why some died. It's why some were saved. The only reason why they were saved is that for some reason before the cross, God decided that salvation must come through a race. It must come through a man. And until that point in time, some will be the chosen. It was the Lord that was not given to not demarcate the chosen from the non-chosen. That law is a demarcation. That's why Paul called it the, law, the wall of partition. So we who were strangers from the covenant, that middle, who were estranged from the covenant of Israel, the Bible says in Ephesians, Paul speaking, that that middle wall of partition, which was the law, Christ had to die to destroy it. That what? Like Pastor said on Sunday, I'll just jump in when he was saying to my spirit, that the blessings of Abraham, not of Isaac, the blood of Abraham might do what? Come upon the Gentiles. So, Isaac already had it by virtue of the fact that he was covenanted in the flesh. But, like Paul said, that promise is not to Isaac. So, even Isaac could not benefit. The blessing came to all, both Jews and Gentiles, when that law of partition was destroyed. So, until then, all men could die. And God could do anything to show forth that he was angry with sin. Praise God. You know, you see, the fact that you ate rice yesterday... Are you, you are eating a bat today. Does it mean you have changed? Does it mean you have changed? So you've not really changed. It's a matter of choice. And mind you, in that scenario you painted, there was war going on. Actually, Pharaoh, you know, it was, you know, we, we don't understand the, uh, the, it's like the, the dynamics of the situation at that time. There, there was war going on between, it's, it's like the battle of good and evil. Pharaoh was at war with, you know, you know, you should realize that for almost the earlier stages of the plagues, Pharaoh and his magicians replicated it in the land of the Jews. So you want to call frogs, call frogs, I will call frogs in your area. So they, they kept replicating. So it was even Pharaoh that was initiating the action for the death or to punish the Israelites. Abi, 
And Moses said, as you have spoken, so it shall be unto you. The firstborn of all Israel will be dead. So there was battle going on. Real battle. If, of course, today you still see reminiscences of that reflection of those kind of battles. If, if a jujumban comes and tells you that you'll be dead, the archbishop told us a lot of stories of how many native doctors challenged him in this town, how they died one by one. Right? I'm sure you've heard those stories, right? Uh, you've heard it from many men of God. That, ah, one native doctor in my village, he said I was going to die. The next day, he had stroke. He died. So when you are challenging a power that is bigger than yours, so they, uh, their first son died because Egypt as a nation, they were challenging a force that was stronger than them. Right? So it was not a matter of, and please, don't estimate God's, don't use human sense of morality to judge God. It's not, God is not in our dimension. Don't use the morality of human. Oh, you know, that's atheist. That's the problem they have. How can God, earthquake, he didn't come. Don't use the morality of man to judge God. God can be jealous, but jealousy is a negative emotion. Right? So, I think that will give us a, very, a clearer picture. All right, quickly, I would just like to take some questions from the audience. Okay. Before you take a question, let me just add to that. Just to prove to you that everybody was going to go down. They even warned Moses, see, if you don't go and slaughter a lamb and splatter that blood on the lintel of your house, this thing that goes sweep through the earth will take you too. So if Israel had not done the same thing, they too would have gone down. Would have gone down. Exactly. Stayed on the, in Goshen and they were saved. Because they came under the cover. So it will tell you that, look, at that point, when God's anger is kindled, you have all man take over. <laughs> go on, yes, go on. Go on. Um, praise God. Um, my first question is about um, babies and little children that die. I, I've always wondered what happens. It makes us, I mean, many of them don't get the chance to accept Christ. And it makes me wonder, when does the spirit of man come into man? Because if as a child being from the womb, the spirit is already there, and then they die without um, confessing Jesus, or believing, or even knowing who Jesus is, what happens to them? Then the second question is on the basis of Christianity being a very broad, allow me to use this word, religion. There are so many doctrines of Christianity, and it's part of the reasons why um, some atheists can bring out um, points to try and challenge Christianity as a whole. You have um, someone who was talking to me last week and he kept saying that majority of the things that Christians believe in and hold on to as doctrines today are just the thoughts of one man, Apostle Paul, that he just woke up one day and said, oh, um, women should not do this. And one church just woke up one day and said, oh, in this church, we don't do this. And then another church rises somewhere and say, we don't do this. Because of parts and bits of what Apostle Paul mentioned in all his letters to the churches then. So it begs the question of, are we following Jesus or we are following the teachings of Paul? And then how do you talk to someone that believes that because there's so much disparity in Christianity, it's not a one religion because how can you guys be so confused amongst yourselves? So how do you talk to that kind of a person? Okay, recently somebody sent a post, an atheist sent a post in our, in our Twitter page and said that he challenged some things and he made some comments that, um, you know, and I just told him, okay, you are not, you don't believe in Christianity, no problem, but do you believe in love for your fellow human? Because the bottom line of the Christian message is love. Jesus even said, 
You cannot say you love God when you don't love your fellow humans. Actually, Jesus, the religion Jesus established is the religion of love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did not come and say, serve God. Right? Is that what he came to do? That's not what Jesus came to do. He, he didn't teach us how to serve God. The only way he showed us how to serve God is how to serve our fellow human beings. You remember when the sons of Zebedee say, oh, let me be. He said, no, no problem. If you want to be the great in the kingdom, that means if you want to be recognized by God, what do you do? Be the least here. Serve your neighbor. So that is the fundamental message of Christianity is love for humanity. Now, you talk about children. You know, I've always said this. When people die, they are sleeping. The human person is inseparable. You see, the human person is not three entities in one. The human person is one, right? Yeah, you can start dimensioning him. Oh, maybe he has a spirit. Oh, maybe he has a body. But human, humanity is inseparate. Cannot, you are not human without the body. Because, you know, when you start holding on to those kind of thoughts that maybe you are human, that you, you, are, that you are alluding to pre-existence. So there is no point at which the soul enters. Every cell in your body, every cell that has a nucleus, once there is a nucleus, that nucleus is a soul. It's the life-carrying element of the being. That's why by actions, by act of serendipity, that means by luck, game of chance, a man was scrubbing an ebonite rod on tissues in a lab, and he left the lab in a place. After he came back, after some hours, he saw that the tissues he rubbed on the lab, they had started growing. That's how cloning was discovered. And if science is giving the freedom to go ahead and clone human beings, you can actually clone a whole human being because inside Oduare is, and I've used the principle of cleavage during the embryonic development. I've used that to explain how every cell in the blastocele, you know, when... There's fertilization. The first phase of development is the cleavage. As the cell begins to divide, divide. Now, every of those little, little balls carry the full potential of the whole organism. It's actually those little, little balls that translate into that, that segregate or specializes into various tissues, various cells, various organs in the body. But at that stage of development, if you separate one, it will be a full human being. So is... The full you, you are a complete person. And every cell in your body is complete. Because your cells are diploid chromosomes, which makes a complete organism. Praise God. So, now when a human being dies, the biblical interpretation of death is sleep. Is sleep. When a human being dies, he is sleeping. So, all the babies, when they die, they are sleeping just like every other person. Yeah, I have my own thoughts about spiritual death and spiritual life, which I am not talking about because I don't want to create unnecessary controversy. But I'll just give you a hint. Just take in a very literal sense, spiritual life would mean that when somebody dies, he just dies and dies permanently. Then spiritual life, when he dies, he's resurrected again to live. Praise God. And that action is the prerogative of God. Right? Praise God. So God can decide that some people, let them sleep permanently. And he can decide that some people, let them wake up and live again. It's the prerogative of God. Praise God. Are we, to, are we together? So take it that children, 
How many of you can remember what you did when you were one? No, you can't. Can you remember your one-year birthday? <laughs> Unless you saw the video. That means that the child is not even self-conscious yet. He has, not, he has not come to that level of development where he knows. Mind you, it's, it's brain work. It's, 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 so you cannot... Consciousness. It's not developed. So you cannot remember what you ate unless your mother told you. You cannot remember where you slept unless your mother told you. You don't know what's poverty and what's not poverty unless your mother told you, right? Praise God. So when the, the children die, they are sleeping. And it's the prerogative of God, if he wants to wake them up at the last day, it's his prerogative. If he wants to let them sleep on, it's his, it's his prerogative. I, I don't have, I don't have a say in that sense. But the point is this. There's a remnant that will be resurrected on the last day. There's a remnant that will be given life after death. Praise God. And that is more important to us. So if anybody challenges you about, oh, um, various uh, doctrine and various, there is one doctrine that cannot be faulted, and that's the doctrine of love. Cannot be faulted. If you love your neighbor, Jesus said on that day of judgment, it is love that he will use as basis, not doctrine. I don't know you, right? Not what you believe. He says, so we come and say, I heal the sick, I did this. He said, no, 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 I don't know you. Because when I was sick, you did not care. When I was hungry, you did not care. I was naked, you did not care. Now, there are those who don't even have any doctrine. No doctrine, save those ones. He is those ones that he chose. And he said, no, but Jesus, when did we see you naked and we gave you a clothing? When did we see you hungry and we fed you? He said, when you were doing it to the least in the kingdom, you were doing it to me. That is the core of the Christian message, is the message of love. Praise God. Let me just address that diversity of sex quickly. Um, um, with human anatomy, we know that the human body has different parts. And Paul addressed this thing because it was asked the same thing. Now, first of all, that person is correct in the sense that there are different sects. There will always be that. I mean, even Jesus Christ's day, not everybody joined him. Even those who believed in him. My father's disciples say that, Master, we met some persons who were casting out demons in your name. But because they were not with us, we stopped them. And Jesus Christ said, no, he that has me cannot scatter. So even Jesus' day, the person who believed in the message did not still join his company. All right? So there will always be those different assemblies. If Jesus Christ, who preached the message and people believed in what he was saying, could not attract everybody to be in his immediate company, then you can expect that. I mean, we always have those diversity of sex. But the point is that you still have diversity of, like Pastor was saying, doctrinal basis and all that. What is core is what is core. The message of Christianity is the message of love. And that's what Jesus Christ has amplified. And in the human body, the fact that the hand doesn't look like the leg or the liver doesn't look like the heart doesn't mean that they're not the same body. It's the same life that runs through them. And that's what's core. You see, don't see hell as punishment. See it as consequence. There's difference between consequence and punishment, right? If you cut your hand, blood will flow, right? Praise God. You know, when we're growing up in those days, when a woman has a sexual relationship with a man, maybe he's not his wife, he gets she gets pregnant. In, in church those days, it is seen as God is punishing her for fornication. That's why she got pregnant. And I, I, I'm, I'm still trying to understand the kind of mindset. If a man and a woman sleep together and the woman is fertile, the man is fertile, 
they should get pregnant. In fact, I used to tell people, if you didn't get pregnant, go and, go and see a doctor, even if you are not married. Say, doctor, I slept with someone who is not my wife or who is not my, who is not my husband, and I didn't get pregnant. So it's a consequence, the result of your action. So hell is not a punishment. Oh, God wants to punish you. No. It's a consequence. So when Jesus came and says, as, um, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that as many as believe, whosoever believes in him will not perish, will not perish, that's a consequence. He's not punishing you because of your... In fact, his coming is to save you from the consequence of... It's not punishment. Punishment is when I want to deliberately inflict pain and deal with you, do you wickedness, or punish you, inflict pain on you because you did not align with... No, that's not what God is doing. God is trying to escape you from the consequence of your unbelief, from the consequence of your choices. So hell should be seen as a consequence and not punishment. Praise God. Yeah. I think that is it's very simple. Hell is a consequence and not punishment. I right, two questions here quickly. Everybody is born atheist. Every human's decision principle is born out of their life experience. So then if atheists can be successful by applying certain principle and not having to believe or worship God to achieve such feats, how then do we preach to them? Why should they believe or worship God? And why do they need to worship God? Uh, the question would be, so why do people need love? Why do people need peace? Why do people, they, are, they are intangible concepts that cannot be developed by science or advancement of technology. I mean, people find out they have to become billionaires at this TMT. I, I remember last year I was, I, I, I was in a shopping mart um, and there was someone in Houston. I was just about entering a mall and I don't know who was talking to me. And I'm like, this, the owner of this boutique, not the owner, the brand, that designer. I don't know what's Katie, Katie, whatever. She just committed suicide. And the person was like, how could somebody so successful to commit suicide? Because irrespective of how far man is advanced, we have been able to invent the phone, the Facebook, social media, yet we still feel so disconnected. We have been able to conquer space, yet we cannot conquer the interpersonal distance between ourselves. We are more interconnected today than ever before, yet we feel so distant. The reality is this. If man does not, is not anchored to God, he's become a slave to his own inventions. That's the reality. And that's why you find that as people become more advanced and liberal in that sense of advancement, they go to those countries, people become more bestial, and become more slave to their desires. And long run, you wonder why should there be a rise in suicide rates in countries that are so advanced compared to countries like Africa where we are really, where you know what suffering is. We can spell it. I go to a place and someone tells you that the reason why it's come to society that they didn't just say hi to me this morning. You're, you're idiotic because you don't have problems. You see, that's the point. When Man forgets that he's first of all a spiritual being. In spiritual, not in that spooky sense, but spiritual means that he has a source, he has emotions, he has a connect. You can do all the externalities, but if you don't address what's internal, you will still be empty. You will still be empty. And, and the fundamental need of man is what Jesus solved. And that is the need for eternal life. If you do an analysis of every living being, whether in the Muslim world, in the Hindu world, in just name it, there is a point in their developmental stage as they are becoming more self-aware. They become concerned about immortality, about life after death. I told you guys how my daughter, 
we just suddenly start crying. Say, Daddy, so you are going to die. Mommy, so mommy and daddy will die. You know? He is becoming aware of that reality of life. Jesus did not die so that we can eat, or so we can drive cars, or so we can succeed in business. No, that's not why. The fundamental need, now, that fundamental need is what drove the entire human race into idolatry. Why would a human being serve juju? Even the most intelligent of human in, in the generation of, in the, when a, a philosophy was blossoming, in the Arist Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, as intelligent, the foundation of knowledge, many of those men established it. Whether in all fields, in zoology, in science, in anthropology, in art, they established it. Guess what? They were even more idolatrous because they knew that there is, a, there is something about the human person that transcends the, the dimension of earth. And it is the inner quest to secure that essence of our humanity that drives us to religion. Why will a Muslim man five times a day have you not traveled and you see Muslims on the express? Anywhere they are, you see those driving trailers, they will stop and go and pray. Let me tell you, what even brought, gave men the courage to even say God does not exist was Jesus. Because he came to remove the burden, those burden of religion, that, that inner burden of the life hereafter, the burden of religion, the, the burden that is inherent in the human person, to appease a deity, he came to remove it. It's when he, after he removed it, human beings can now say, I beg you, believe God. Could Aristotle say God didn't exist? He will go to Zeus and go and pray in the, in, in, in the mountain. Or so, just name any of them. Chinese today, at least, they are in, in the forefront of, of industry. They are highly religious. Indians, the whole of Silicon Valley is Indians. The whole of Silicon Valley is Indians. In fact, just go to Google. They have more Indians in Google, more Indians in Facebook, more Indians in Twitter. Just name any tech company. Indians own it. You know, one of the good things I enjoyed when I, in my program, I have a lot of Indians as classmates, you know. We go and eat, and you see them. This one will say, I work with Tesla. I'm the head of this Tesla. I work with this. They'll go and eat. You see, they don't drink alcohol. Not, not like me. They don't drink alcohol out of religious convictions. So with all the wealth and affluence with them, why are they still very sensitive to their religious convictions? Because it's a deep-seated need in the heart of every man, and religion is man's idea of appeasing the gods to secure for himself life hereafter. And it is that critical need that Jesus came to meet. That's why I've told you guys here before, that you are born again is not a guarantee that you live in health. That you are born again is not a guarantee that you live in wealth. That you are born again gives you a... But it's not a guarantee. So you didn't get born again so you'll be rich. Because you can be rich without being born again. Right? But when you get born again, you are dealing with the fundamental need of the human soul. The need for life hereafter. The need to appease the gods and secure ourselves immortality. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right, the final question for tonight. The scriptures that says... God have mercy on those he will have mercy on. Pastor, does it mean that God select those he have mercy on? Why will all belong to him? Why we all belong to him? I think that scripture should be removed from the Bible. 
Because some believers are using it to bully other believers. <laughs> Praise God. Maybe it should be removed from the Bible. Maybe. I, you know, see, Jesus did not come to the earth. And I, I, in the end of all religion, there's a message. The end of all religion. I've told you some of the elements of a religion. A religion, they usually have canons. Religion, they have a holy place. Religion have a representative. Religion have um, maybe a symbolic city. They have uh, representatives like prophets and priests, right? Jesus did not establish any of this. When Jesus left, did he give us a Bible? When he came to the earth, did he come with the Bible? Now, what we would have used as our own symbol, Jerusalem. What did Jesus say? A time we come, which is now the true worshippers, we no longer go to Jerusalem. So he abolished the temple, he says, this temple, not one stone will remain, right? He abolished temple. So every uh, representative of religion, he destroyed it. He eradicated it. So, like I said, God inspired the writing of the scriptures. It does not mean that he dictated the scriptures, right? Praise God now. I'll be now. It didn't mean that he dictated the scriptures. Like you said, if a child was writing the scripture, he would use the language of a child. The language of a child may mean different things from an adult. So God, have mercy on who we have mercy, speaks about the sovereignty of God. And, and I think when I said it's his prerogative, if God decides to wake up 300 billion people on earth, maybe from Adam to now, about 300 billion, there's enough space in, in heaven to accommodate them. You know, heaven is not a village. Is heaven a village? You know, all those of you that go to heaven, they say the man died and went to heaven. And so, heaven is not your village, though, that you know everybody in heaven. I always tell them that you only see your kind. If you are a deeper life and you die and go to heaven, you go to the village in heaven where you have only deeper life people. So, but don't come and start saying that, oh, that pastor that was flying her hair, I didn't see her there. No, she's not in the place where you are. She's in another, heaven is not your village. The earth is his footstool. The earth is a microcosm of the heavenly bodies. The earth is a speck. Science proves that. When we speak about the galaxies and the cosmos, the earth is just a, a, a strain of dust. So God has enough space. So it is his prerogative. Right? He can decide that, okay, let me just... Are you aware that God can decide to say, okay, every human being that has lived before, I forgive all of them. I'm going to resurrect all of them. Abina, it took over 4 billion years before you were created. So what was, what was God thinking about for those 4 billion years? He was having argument with Satan, Lucifer. <laughs> Abi, what was God thinking about? So, so who says that in another 4 billion years, God will not think of another cosmos? He's God, independent and sovereign. This may not be the end of you, of 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 life. God may want to experiment. Who knows whether he's already experimenting? Are you sure God is not already experimenting? All those UFOs that we are seeing coming around, we are told they come to collect information from data. They are gathering data. Who knows how? Are you sure God is not already experimenting with some kind of beings somewhere that you cannot even comprehend? So it is the prerogative of God. And because of his sovereignty, he can forgive who he wants to forgive. He can. So if you go to heaven, and perhaps where you are in heaven, if you are like, type like pop, and you see Michael Jackson there, don't go to, you, you cannot even go to God and say, God, how can Michael Jackson be here? 
it's his prerogative. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it runs, that summarizes that point. It, it, the communication, the context of communication is based on the limitation of human language. But what we gather is revelation behind it. God is sovereign. And when you get mature, you get to understand. As a child, all you understand is, I want food, give me food. But as you mature, you realize that you can have the opportunity and ability to purchase food and choose not to eat. That's maturity. So when God says, I'll have mercy on how I have mercy, it means that I have chosen that this is the premise upon which mercy will be delivered. You cannot fault it. Things are not right because they appease your senses. They are right because God said so. Shikina, whatever the premise for that moral code is just absolutely one thing. God said so. Said so. Of course, with time, we'll get to understand why he said so. But it's not right because of the explanation. It is right because he said so. You know, and the Bible says, Paul speaking that he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul says, if Christ be not risen from the dead, we have all men most miserable. Because that's what ultimately is about. Christ has brought eternal life to our hearts, like Pastor said. This is why we preach. This is why we live. Because beyond the side of eternity, there's a greater life out there. And then the full manifestation of who we are, we come to be. Right now, we cannot pass through the wall. We are still limited by space and time. As time goes on, you will see us passing through wall. The reality of who we are has not yet been shown. Eyes have not seen. We're already flying in space. Now we can, I, I, last day I was flying 24, 20, 16 hours, one flight, 24 hours plus. My great-grandfather could not have imagined that part of his progeny will one day be suspended in the air for 16 hours. He, the Oba of Benin could not have believed that. My great-grandfather was the Oba of Benin. He could not, if he could have comprehended that, Benin would not have gone to war with the British. He would have been signing treaties. If we could understand, I'm telling you, we would have just realized that no man is moving in the direction. Let us be cooperating to move in that direction. We were fighting because we thought that more stools and other things were more important. But now we've come to realize that eyes have not seen what this thing. If we go 50 years from now, our grandchildren will be laughing at us that we're using iPad. That was they're using primitive things like iPad. And they're watching TV. So bush. Why? Because this is who we are. We're created this way. The world has not yet seen what the image of God can truly do with this cosmos. And who told us that we're the only ones? There's probably some galaxy where they never sinned, where man never fell. An advanced civilization that is walking in the realm of the spirit, advanced scientific realm, where people are passing through walls. Angels, angels don't ever come near. We are still at grade three civilization. That's why we're still arguing, is God real? Those, they talk with God directly. <laughs> They've transcended that realm, possibly. And one day, we will get there. God bless you all. Hallelujah. It's been a wonderful time. Until we come your way again, same time, same station, Christian Apologetics. Watch out.